trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Or should I say, welcome back from the weekend. It is Monday, the 14th of September. Woo, halfway through the month. I'm just a little bit incredulous. Uh, there, You know, can I, just, can, I, can I just offer an observation here? If you want time to stand still, exercise. Do something really hard. Plank, do yoga or Pilates or something. That's when time seems to slow down. In, in other words, the, the times when it's painful and strenuous, that's when it really seems to slow down. When things are going great... Right? It, it, it rushes by. Everything goes by in an instant. Whoosh, gone. 2020 has been one of those years that uh, that seems like, I don't know. It's It's been a long time that I, since I can remember time dragging on. And this has been an interesting year in so many ways. And in some ways, there have been some really great things. I mean, I've shared the experience of being able to uh, connect with my biological parents for the very first time. That's been a huge high point. I mean, I guess if I had to to choose as far as, uh, so 2020, worst year ever? No, at least not by that criteria. In fact, it's actually one of the most uh, rewarding and greatest years of my life from that aspect. However, (laughs) there's been a few other things you may have noticed. I don't know, coronavirus, et cetera, that uh, have presented some real challenges. And uh, we're going to spend some time talking about how, uh, of all the things that have suffered, right, uh, COVID-19, I think has taken its greatest toll, not on human life, but on human liberty. Because the the pandemic is still ongoing, and free countries, or at least countries that used to be considered free countries, seem to be slipping down this slope into authoritarian rule. And it's, it's pretty painful, especially if you're one of those people who kind of swoons when Lee Greenwood talks about how great it is to be an American, where at least you know you're free. It's, that's a pretty tough thing to say. Unless you live in South Dakota, it's pretty hard to, to make the case that, yeah, 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 we're free. I know uh, J.D. Tassil, writing for Reason.com, has a terrific article about how COVID-19 pandemic is proving especially deadly to liberty. And this, this may make you feel a little bit better, at least if you don't live in, in Britain or maybe in Australia or New Zealand. But uh, apparently uh, this week the British government announced limits on gatherings of people who don't live together to groups of no more than six. It's, it's the so-called rule of six. And this is taking totalitarianism or authoritarianism, I should say, to the next level. J.D. Tussil says, although the restriction seriously attacks freedom of assembly, it barely raised an eyebrow in an era of similar intrusions. I mean, how could it stand out when countries around the world are tightening the screws on speech, movement, business, and even social connections in the name of public health? His point is, as many people feared, the COVID-19 pandemic, or more appropriately, the government response to it, is proving quite deadly to liberty. Now, here's the kicker, and this is the part that really hit me as I was reading this uh, this essay, 
it's not so much the fact that, yeah, you know, authoritarians, you know, are, are uh, you know, grabbing authority because there's a, a an emergency, something that provides leverage, fear, anger, something like that, to where they can say, well, we need to take extraordinary measures and it's going to require us to take some of your liberty. That's not surprising. That's how authoritarians have always operated. Necessity, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. What's disturbing, though, and this is the point that J.D. Tusseel makes, is so many people seem happy to go along with it. They're not just, well, okay, I guess, you know, I'll reluctantly do this. They're, they're complicit. They're, they're willing. They're willing to go out and be enforcers of it, even though it's negatively impacting them and their personal autonomy. Go figure. Matt Hancock, who is the U.K. Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, said, actually he tweeted, From Monday, we're introducing the Rule of Six. If you meet socially in groups of more than six, you will be dispersed, fined, and possibly arrested by the police. If we work together in the national interest, we can defeat this unprecedented coronavirus. I'm just going to let you kind of dissect that word salad for a moment there, but... If you meet socially in groups of more than six, you are facing the threat of violence on the part of your government. That's the, that's the uh, translated version coming you know, through my translator. The government will commit violence on you. Now, interestingly enough, the rule of six does allow for some exceptions, including protests and political activities. Wink, wink, BLM. <laughs> <laughs> this this is your uh, get-out-of-jail card. But it's only subject to government guidance that makes in-face meetings privileges under nanny's scrutiny. J.D. Tusseel says, when author- While authoritarian governments commonly criminalize gatherings of potential dissidents, meeting to oppose the current batch of seat warmers in favor of your own lot is essential to the democratic experience in nominally free countries. He says it's also a fundamental right to gather with friends, co-religionists, colleagues, and family as part of civil society, the sections of the world that matter beyond the boundaries of government. But he says Britain's restrictions on assembly pale in comparison to the pre-crime arrests police in the Australian state of Victoria made of those who simply advocated public demonstrations against government policy. We talked about this. Uh, Zoe Bueller a pregnant woman who had called on social media for peaceful protests against the state's draconian pandemic lockdown live-streamed her own arrest. Police hauled her off, even after she offered to delete the offending post. Ah, She committed thought crime. She had to be made an example of. At least her door is still on the hinges. Victoria police broke into James Bartolo's home and tackled him to the floor. Again, his crime was was openly advocating protest against government policy. Well, guess what? The protests proceeded anyway in defiance of the law. Of course, attendees criticizing government policy were arrested. Now, J.D. Tusseel says these days you don't even have to assemble or even advocate assembly to get arrested in France. All you have to do is insult a mayor. The elevated penalty of community service plus a 7,500 euro fine for those who express contempt for mayors is being imposed after local officials complained of 233 physical attacks up from 198 during the same period last year. But he says then again, France has always frowned on harsh words directed at government institutions and office holders, so criminalizing speech defined as defamation and contempt. 
Now, the extraordinary circumstances of COVID-19 provide an opportunity to impose extraordinary penalties, further shielding the delicate feelings of government officials from the scorn of their subjects. In July, David Kay, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, warned that in the past three months, numerous governments have used the COVID-19 pandemic to repress expression in violation of their obligations under human rights law. But the countries he cited were mostly the usual suspects. Places like Belarus or China or Turkey. To see Australia, Britain and France take advantage of the pandemic to impose restrictions and penalties on free speech and assembly is to see established and theoretically stable liberal democracies follow a path blazed by authoritarian countries. Now, he says, to date, free speech seems safer for Americans than for some of our overseas friends. We can pretty much say what we want about government officials and their policies. Events in Portland and elsewhere suggest that we can even gather to do so publicly, if sometimes more violently than might be advised. Still... Americans have been subject to lockdown orders, travel restrictions, mask mandates, and other requirements and prohibitions supposedly intended to protect our health, but definitely injurious to our liberty. Jenny B. Davis wrote for the ABA Journal back in April, in halls of power across the country, the growing novel, let's try that again, the growing novel coronavirus pandemic has sometimes been used to stretch, bend, or ignore established law and policy. She says fundamental freedoms, privacy protections, and access to justice have been curtailed in the name of public safety, with legal justifications ranging from appropriate to patently inaccurate. Now, alleged public safety measures unrestrained by limits on power can inflict their own dangers and their own costs on health as well as freedom. We'll come back to this in just a few moments, but more than just trying to to rile up your sense of frustration... Hopefully this is providing some perspective as to, you know, the the way that these things can be approached is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. I really believe that we are better off when authorities give people the opportunity to make their own decisions, much like Sweden did, much like South Dakota has done. But unfortunately, there seem to be a lot of people who are okay with a little boot on the back of their neck if it makes them feel safer. How do we cure that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back from the break. By the way, our show is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Go to staplesmortgage.com. Just go to that web address, staplesmortgage.com. That'll get you in touch with my friend John Staples, his lovely wife, Heather, and they are there to uh, to help you through the uh, sometimes difficult but but always rewarding world of getting yourself a new home loan or maybe refinancing your existing home loan. They have the expertise, they have the work ethic, and they have the clout of Patriot Home Mortgage, 23 states strong, to help you accomplish whatever it is you are trying to accomplish. Again, that's staplesmortgage.com. The Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a sponsor of this program. 
So I'm sharing an article from J.D. Tussiel. This was published on Reason.com. The COVID-19 pandemic keeps proving deadly to liberty. And this is the, this is the problem here. Public safety measures when they are unrestrained by limits on power, have the ability to inflict their own costs on health as well as freedom. Uh, Physician assistant Jordan Warnsholz, who is suing Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer over her restrictions, says danger looms when one person tries to regulate the lives of millions. Whitmer's orders are a case in point. One banned any non-essential medical procedures and elective surgeries. And Jordan Warnholz says there's no doubt that banning these procedures harmed the health and safety of my patients, end quote. So J.D. Tussiel says the damage is worse when frightened people imagine that the curtailment of liberty is a good thing, and they become complicit in the oppression of themselves and their neighbors. Pollsters find a majority of Michigan voters actually approve of Whitmer's heavy-handed mismanagement of the pandemic response. I'm sorry, that blew me away to read that. But then again, I've seen enough video evidence of some of the Karens out there who just lust to control other people, and uh, maybe it's not as surprising. It's still kind of discouraging. J.D. Tussiel says they also oppose repealing the 1945 law that allows the governor to unilaterally declare an emergency and rule without legislative input. Yeah, that sounds like a good recipe for mischief as well. In Australia, he writes, Victoria's voters also cheer on the restrictive regime under which they live. The Guardian reports, overall, public opinion seems solidly behind the curtailment of civil liberties that would have been unthinkable a month ago. I'm sorry, but that sounds a lot like Stockholm Syndrome to me. Yeah, amateur armchair psychologist that I am. J.D. Tussiel says, It's difficult to imagine government officials having exercised unprecedented control over our lives often to popular applause, willingly restoring our freedom. The big takeaway from the pandemic era might not be the ease with which governments steal away our freedom by invoking the alleged necessities of a crisis. He says the real revelation is how little effort it takes to make many people like it. And I agree. That is the part that chills me to the bone. Is that there are people who actually are like they're not just okay with it but they they actually like what's going on it makes them feel as if they're in control i don't know maybe they're getting a contact high from the authoritarians because well i'm doing what they say and by calling the police on this gathering of seven people instead of six people well you know i'm doing my part it wasn't so long ago that uh uh my wife, who is a public school teacher, was was talking about the the ruckus that that some parents, and this is just a tiny handful of parents, had been making on social media about uh, kids at the school where my wife teaches not wearing their masks properly. Now, keep in mind, we're dealing with kids, so it's not like you know this this is a huge shock. Why they didn't do exactly as they were told? They're kids, they're young people. They're they're going to make mistakes. But some of the, the calls for, let's make this public, let's put the pressure on the principal, let's, let's you know, go after these teachers who aren't, you know, forcing these kids to, to wear these masks correctly. It's so vindictive. And my daughter, is, as my wife was telling her about this, uh, my daughter, you know, was joking like, jokingly saying, well, gee, what's, what's next? She's hiding Jews in her basement. And I laugh about it because I'm thinking, all right, that's, that's a good point. That's the same mentality, though. 
And that's the point she's trying to make is it's that same mentality of endearing yourself to uh, authority, regardless of what authority is asking, without asking first. Is it moral? Is it right? It's just a question of, well, is it policy? Is it legal? See, there's even a question for me of whether or not it's legal. I don't think executive orders from a governor carry the same weight as actual legislation from a lawmaking body. But then again, I'm one of those purists, you know, I insist on, you know, I have God-given rights and I'm going to assert them as best I can. I'm not going to ask permission to be free. But apparently for a lot of people, it's it's not enough that they not be free. They want to make sure nobody else is being too free or or failing to live in as much fear as they are. That's a concern. In fact, if I could just be a little bit blunt, that is my deepest concern about what we are seeing come out of this pandemic. I understand. Yeah, people have been sick. I have friends. I have two good friends who have been sick enough that they've had to be on respirators and, and narrowly have escaped with their lives. So I'm not going to tell you this is all a hoax. It's just a, it's a, it's a made-up thing. For them, it's a very real challenge. Now, I also have friends who have had it and said, yeah, we were over it within a day. So the range of reactions and the symptoms and the, the outcome from, from COVID-19 can be very different for different people. It depends on what risks and comorbidities you may have, you know, depending on, on what kind of health risks you're carrying around on a day-to-day basis. But as disturbing as that is, it's not as disturbing as the idea that there are people who just want to impose their control on others. That's the part I find intolerable. That's the reason I speak up. It's why I can't seem to stay away from this subject. I don't want to impose my point of view on anybody. You know what I want? I want to be left the hell alone to peacefully live my life and go about making the choices that will best, you know, lead me to happiness. And that's what I want you to do. Not sit there and ruthlessly control, control, control everybody around you. But that's uh, that's what this pandemic has brought out. And it's funny, I mentioned last week, you know, the, there's, there's a very concerted effort. Well, the Karens are the ones who won't wear a mask. Nope. Karens are the ones who have to have that control. They're the ones who want to control the people around them. Don't ever mistake that for anything else. People who just want to be left alone just want to be left alone. Why not let them? By the way, few businesses have been hit as hard by the lockdown mentality as have restaurants. So I wonder who stands up for the restaurants. I mean, I have good friends who are like, you know, let's do what we can to support them. But it's tough. You know, restaurants are told you can only have this many people in there. They have to reduce their seating capacity. Uh, Some of them, you know, according to guidelines, you have to wear a mask walking to your table. But hey, once you're at your table, masks are off and it's, it's fair game. What's been very curious to me is that most media outlets, or at least most of the corporate media outlets that I've seen, seem very much uh, like sycophants. They are the yes-men when it comes to upholding the official narrative. And as Jeffrey Tucker points out, in a war on restaurants, the media is touting the lockdown narrative. They're no friends of of these uh, restaurants or other businesses. Jeff Tucker, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says just when the fear starts to subside and growing public public skepticism seems to push governors into opening, something predictable happens. 
the entire apparatus of mass media hops on some new super scary headline designed to instill more coronaphobia and extend the lockdowns yet again. Maybe you've noticed this. He says it's a cycle that never stops. It comes back again and again. A great example happened just this past weekend. I don't know if you were paying attention to this, but a poll appeared on Friday from the Kaiser Family Foundation. It showed that confidence in Anthony Fauci is evaporating along with support for lockdowns and mandatory COVID vaccines. Now, that news barely made the headlines and was quickly overshadowed by a scary new claim. Restaurants will give you COVID. Really? We'll come back to this just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, just a quick reminder, you can always check out the show notes, and I hope you will. They are posted at thebrianhydeshow.com every time I do this program. I have show notes with links to the various articles and essays that I reference. And I would encourage you, take a look at them, share them with friends, post them on social media if you would like. Right now we're talking about an article from Jeffrey A. Tucker. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. In a war on restaurants, media tout the lockdown narrative. And it's very telling that this past weekend, there was a poll that came out last Friday from the Kaiser Family Foundation showing that confidence in Dr. Anthony Fauci is dropping, along with support for lockdowns and mandatory COVID vaccines. And how curious that that news barely was mentioned at all, but very quickly overshadowed by scary new headlines as mass media closed ranks with the headline, Restaurants Will Give You COVID. Jeffrey Tucker says it's tailor-made for the mainstream press. The study's from the CDC, which means credible, and its thesis is easily digestible. Those who test positive for COVID are twice as likely as those who tested negative to have eaten at a restaurant. The study says eating and drinking on-site at locations that offer such options might be important risk factors associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection. Very scary, he says. Thus, the implied conclusion, don't allow indoor dining. Otherwise, COVID will spread like wildfire. Well, Jeff Tucker says after six months of this corona kabuki dance, driven by alarmist media and imposed by wacko power-abusing governors and mayors, He says, I've become rather cynical about the whole enterprise, so I mostly ignore the latest nonsense. But he says, in this case, I decided to take a closer look simply because of so many millions of owners, workers, and customers who've been treated so brutally in the war on restaurants. And it turns out, of course, that this is not what the study said. What's more interesting is to consider exactly what's going on here. The study was based on interviews with 314 people who had been tested of their own volition. That included 154 patients with positive test results and 160 control participants with negative test results. The interviews took place two weeks following the tests, and they concerned life activities two weeks prior to getting the tests. Now, he says, before we go on here, remember what, that what alarmed people about COVID was the prospect of dying. But the study says nothing about this subject, nor about hospitalization. So it's a fair assumption that the positive cases being interviewed here got it if the tests are accurate, which they are not, 
and then got over it. Now, this alone is interesting simply because it reveals how much the whole subject has been changed. The pandemic has become a case-demic. Now, to the question of life activities, in the study, based on answers to a survey, the following were not correlated in any significant degree with positive cases of COVID. Wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Going to church. Riding on public transportation. Attending large house parties. Going to the gym. Going to the office. Going to the hair salon. Going shopping. Now you might suppose, he says, if the study has any merit, that this would be the headline. But the massive power of the state has been deployed all over the United States and the world to force the closures of churches, gyms, offices, salons, and malls. This all happened and is still happening. Also, mask mandates became the new normal. The public has been invited by health authorities to jeer at, denounce, or turn in anyone who doesn't have a cloth strapped to his or her face. And all of this happened in complete contradiction to every commercial right, property right, or normal human freedoms. In other words, we threw it all away in the name of virus control. Our lives have been completely upended, and our assumptions about our rights and liberties have been overturned. And yet here's a study that's unable to document any correlation between these life activities and catching the disease. That's an amazing conclusion, and it should have generated headlines like, Salons won't get you sick, CDC reports. You won't catch COVID at the gym, CDC shows. No, your hairstyle doesn't spread, or your hairstylist doesn't spread the coronavirus. Scared to go shopping? Don't be, says the CDC. Your mask is pointless, new study says. Churchgoers shouldn't fear sickness, scientists reveal. Study, your house party didn't spread the virus. Oh man, I would love to see headlines like this. But as Jeffrey Tucker points out, none of this was to be. Not a single story in the mainstream press said anything like this, even though this was all implied by the CDC study. The one place that the study reveals a positive correlation between positive cases and life activities was going to restaurants. So that's what got the alarmist headlines. And these are all real headlines. New COVID-19 study blames coronavirus spread on restaurant dining. Coronavirus patients twice as likely to have eaten in restaurants before getting ill. CDC study. Adults with COVID-19 twice as likely to have eaten at restaurants. CDC study finds. Study finds bad news for bar and restaurant goers during COVID-19. And finally, U.S. government study highlights COVID-19 risk from bars and restaurants. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, and so on for thousands of times in every mainstream venue. Now, they're all competing for clicks in the great agenda of extending lockdowns and feeding public fear as much as possible. So the worst possible spin on this slightly sketchy study is what gets all the headlines. And this is how it's burned into many people's minds that restaurants are really disease-spreading venues. Go out to eat, and you might die. But he says, here's what makes this even stranger. The interviewer never asked the people in the survey whether or they were eating indoors or outdoors, as incredible as that seems. And the authors admit this. Of note, the question assessing dining at a restaurant did not distinguish between indoor and outdoor options. To which Jeff Tucker says, why not? Did they just forget to ask? What's going on here? 
which is to say that even if the results are meaningful, and there's so much about this study that is murky and error-prone, they are practically useless for knowing what to do about it. If there's no distinction between indoor and outdoor, all the speculation about ventilation or crowds or the presence of food and so on is utterly pointless. Without knowing that, we are at a loss to figure out any answer to the question of why and what to do. Instead, the message comes down to, don't go out to eat. Here's how bad the science has become. In the discussion, the authors write the following, quote, Direction, ventilation, and intensity of airflow might affect virus transmission, even if social distancing measures and mask use are implemented according to current guidance. Masks cannot be effectively worn while eating and drinking, whereas shopping and numerous other indoor activities do not preclude mask use. Now he says, here's what's weird. The study itself supports none of that paragraph. Because the survey never asked about ventilation, because the people who made the survey somehow forgot to make a query concerning indoor versus outdoor dining. As for masks, the study did in fact ask respondents about mask wearing, and the results showed no correlation between sickness and whether and to what extent people were wearing masks. In other words, that paragraph in the discussion is contradicted in two places by the author's own study. And he says, in addition, the authors themselves point to an intriguing issue. The people in the survey may have biased their answers based on their personal knowledge of the test results. Think about it this way. People who had a positive COVID test are more likely to ask themselves the great question, how did I get this? Going to restaurants is such a rare activities these day, activity these days that it stands out in one's mind. So when the survey asked people, well, have you gone out to eat? Is it possible that the memory of the COVID-positive person might be more likely to blame the restaurant, whereas the COVID-negative person might be more likely to have forgotten the locale of every meal in the last 30 days? In other words, the real result of the study might be COVID patients are more likely to scapegoat restaurants than gyms, churches, and salons. But he says, alas, none of these interesting considerations appear in the media-rendered version of this study. Panic and keep the lockdowns in place. He says, lockdowns have become a conclusion in desperate search for evidence. Imagine if you undertook a study of C-positive versus C-negative cases and asked the people if they mostly wear lace-up or slip-on shoes. If you come up with some positive correlation, the CDC will publish you and a media panic will ensue. And this is precisely where we've been for a solid six months now. The media has become the handmaiden of lockdown tyranny, blasting out simplistic versions of sketchy studies to keep the panic going as long as possible. And the public, which is far too trusting of the media and its capacity for rational and accurate reporting, eats it up. For now. He says, once the dust settles on all this, it seems highly likely that, the, that media science reporting will lose credibility for a generation, and it certainly deserves that fate. Meanwhile, an entire industry is being creamed. All right. I don't want to pile on necessarily, but I'll tell you, in uh, one, one, of my, uh, one of the main news organizations in my home state of Utah, everything they publish about coronavirus has that panicky feel. Oh, look, we had this many cases, more hospitalizations and so forth. And yet you say, compared to what? It's like they want us to be afraid. Maybe they gain relevance in it. The more fear, the more people will tune in to see how fearful they should be. That sounds like a self-fulfilling prophecy.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, again, I'm going to ask you, please, if you haven't done it already, swing by my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. If you are so inclined, I would ask you, please, subscribe to the podcast. Spread the word. Share it on social media. Tell a friend or two. Tell them, hey, sometimes this guy makes sense. And, and if I don't, then certainly the people who I'm talking with or the uh, authors whose articles I'm sharing, they make a ton of sense. Oh, and, and by the way, I want, to, I want to remind you, in uh, the second hour of today's show, we talk with Jen Mafasanti from the Foundation for Economic Education about uh, her take on our brave new world and how people cannot be forced into being happy. She has a terrific article on thinking deeply about what really makes you happy, held up against the backdrop of uh, brave new world. Fascinating stuff, and I would strongly encourage you, check it out. You can start by going to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Okay, two quick items I want to cover in this uh, final segment for this hour. Um, First of all, I have said and I have believed for the longest time, yes, people vote with their pocketbooks. But it turns out that uh, maybe this is overstating things a little bit. I believe that is still true at a consumer level. But Max Golker, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, makes a very strong case that this is a myth when it comes to how we go about voting for candidates, like when we literally vote. He says, this near ubiquitous cliche of do Americans vote with their pocketbooks seems at first to pass the test of common sense. I mean, why, why wouldn't people vote for the candidates under whom they'll do the best financially? A wealthy voter should favor the candidate who will lower their taxes. A chronically unemployed voter should support the candidate promising lavish government handouts. But he says, in the most basic economic terms, this logic falls apart. If one votes, for example, to maximize the present value of their future income, the answer is to not vote at all. Given the vanishingly low probability of breaking a tie, voting isn't worth the gasoline used to drive to one's local fire station and cast a ballot. So perhaps this critique says more about the limits of economic economic modeling, rather, than it does about voting. Slogans like, it's the economy, stupid, and are you better off than you were four years ago, suggest a bigger picture view people can take when voting their pocketbooks. But once again, he says, this view fails to hold water. And he says, the concept of voting one's pocketbook frequently causes partisans who don't understand the other party's voters to make strategic errors. And it also perpetuates the destructive idea that different groups of citizens are playing a zero-sum game against each other. And finally, and perhaps most insidiously, it creates the myth that the right politician can make your pocketbook grow. Now, he goes into the seduction of Joe Sixpack by starting out noting that in late 2004, after voters delivered four more years of George W. Bush, He says, my parents and their progressive friends were abuzz about George Lakoff's book, Don't Think of an Elephant. Lakoff urged earnest lefties to get more politically savvy. Now, to summarize the book, John Kerry had lost because of those crafty Republicans who, through the use of buzzwords like pro-life and tax relief, had mesmerized Joe Sixpack into voting against his economic interest. A couple of years later came Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas? Similar in its cringeworthy myopia, though subtly more scolding to Joe Sixpack himself in tone. 
unwilling to part with the idea that the GOP was fueled exclusively by the rich getting richer, progressives needed expert analysis in suburban book clubs to tell them why such a large fraction of the non-rich might be on board. And the great irony is that most of the head-scratching about white working-class voters going against their economic interest was being done by upper-middle-class progressives who wear their own votes against lower tax rates as a badge of honor. He says these prosperous but perplexed progressives in turn expose the mirror image fallacy held by Republicans that voters on the left just want handouts or free stuff. Max Golker says the vanguard of socialism, progressivism, and welfare statism has always come from relatively well-off intellectuals. Rather than wanting free stuff, they want to see themselves as the givers of free stuff. So economic outcomes and political narratives don't play nicely together, and the results increasingly harm more than just the two parties' strategic efforts to win converts. A 2019 study from the Wall Street Journal and the Brookings Institution characterizes the current landscape as two parties, two economies. Now, this study clearly and effectively presents, prevents rather the divergence of different types of voters over the last decade. Democrats are more concentrated in highly educated urban areas that depend on professional and information economy jobs. Republicans from rural areas built on manufacturing and agriculture. Those differences have grown more stark with time. Here's the author's conclusion. They say that for at least the foreseeable future, therefore, the nation seems destined to struggle with extreme economic, territorial, and political divides in which the two parties talk almost entirely past each other on the most important economic and social issues like innovation, immigration, and education because they represent starkly separate and diverging worlds. Not only do the two parties adhere to two very different views, but they inhabit increasingly different economies and environments. Now, there's an implicit idea here that while the authors don't, ex- don't explicitly endorse, Max Golkor says, I wish they would explicitly reject. And that's the concept of two opposed and diverging economies suggest to many that government policy can help one economy prosper, albeit at the expense of the other. And he says this is plainly false. President Trump's anti-trade policies, for example, have hurt the entire economy, including manufacturing, even including the hand-picked industries he myopically sought to protect. Meanwhile, the COVID-19 lockdowns enforced by both parties, but more enthusiastically on the left, have been especially brutal on urban economies. Max Golker says the political drama captured by the Wall Street Journal Brookings study is indeed driven by economic forces. The decades-long shift in the composition of American labor, demand-driven, labor demand rather, driven by globalization and a revolution in information technology, is likely the most important economic story of our time and defines this conflict. But he says the only path to resolution is an understanding that free, connected people, unencumbered by the smoke and mirrors of politicians favoring one type of economy over another, prosper together rather than at each other's expense. So here's the conclusion. Max Golker says people vote their pocketbooks is a misleading, potentially insidious approximation of voter behavior. In fact, he says a better approximation for modern times is people vote for the candidate or party that provides a better story about themselves. Now that can be problematic itself, but when we bring economic performance along for the ride, our problems only multiply. Putting our economic fortunes in the hands of politicians, he says, is a recipe for division and stagnation every time. I wanted to disagree, but I think he's right. 
I think he's actually on target here. And so I commend that to you uh, for your examination. All right, some practical uh, advice. We're not just going to complain about, uh, you know, coronavirus and government. Let's talk about getting kids to eat their dinner. Emma Friere is the mom of three kids, and she zeroes in on something that I'm actually watching my children with children start to uh, struggle with because they have little kids. She says, mealtimes with kids can be one of the most frustrating parts of a parent's day. It's upsetting to cook up a healthy, delicious meal just to have your kids reject it. You feel the pain, right? Yet she says, as difficult as it is, parents need to persevere. Teaching kids to eat balanced, nutritious meals is an important part of a good upbringing. Eating habits are learned behaviors, write Ann Cooper and Lisa Holmes in their book, Lunch Lessons, Changing the Way We Feed Children. In other words, these behaviors are not intuitive. So they say what your children learn to eat at home early in life sticks with them early or rather well into adulthood. Now, Emma Freire says about a year ago, she realized they had fallen into some unhealthy eating patterns. So she rededicated herself to ensuring that her kids ate well. And there's three pieces of advice that she offers that I think were, were very well thought out. Number one, cut out snacks. If your kid has filled up on snacks, they're going to refuse their dinner. That seems obvious, but it's harder to implement than it seems. So parents, you need to monitor what what your kids are eating outside of mealtimes. It's way too easy to just absentmindedly give your kid a snack in response to a request. By the way, parents and babysitters both need to be on board with this. Secondly, serve tiny portions. Getting your kids to eat their food is a marathon, not a sprint. So parents need to establish the principle that a child must eat whatever is served to them. Start by dishing up a tiny portion that you think your child can handle. If they're still hungry, they can go back for seconds. But additionally, never let your kids serve themselves. She says, if your children are like mine, they'll tend to dish up more than they can actually eat. And finally, offer uneaten food later. Now, that's a bit harsh, but if you follow steps one and two and your child still won't eat their food, put the plate in the refrigerator. And if they ask for a snack later, bring out the plate. She says, I've only had to do this a few times, and it is quite effective. Now, there's some other bits of advice that she has to offer as well, including letting the kids actually help with food prep. That seems like good advice. No short order cooking. In other words, don't ask your kids, okay, what can I make you? You have to make the decisions. You have to be the adult. Bottom line is, though, Emma Freer says these strategies were successful in her family. So if you have kids who are struggling to eat right... Maybe this will help you a little bit in your struggle. This is The Brian Hyde Show.